Proverbs chapter 4 and verse 23. Proverbs chapter 4, verse 23 may be the, uh, it certainly be in the top five verses in Proverbs by which to, uh, to guide your life. And I'm kind of using this as our theme verse as we do our journey through Proverbs. We've been in Proverbs now a little over a month. And um, Proverbs 4.23 says, Keep your heart with all diligence, or keep your heart with all vigilance, for from it flow the springs of life. Keep your heart with all vigilance, for from it flow the springs of life. Father, we thank you for your word, and we thank you that we can have an open Bible tonight. And may we enjoy the fellowship of your word. May your spirit teach us and, and reaffirm us and, and just feed our souls with your presence. And that the wisdom that comes from Solomon, the wisdom that comes from all the, from the scriptures as we seek this, this topic of pride, that you'll give us ears to hear and hearts eager to learn, wills quick to obey, and renew our minds with your truth tonight, Father, in Jesus' name. Amen. You may be seated. Now that verse, verse 23, says, Your heart, keep your heart with all vigilance, for out of it the springs of life. Um, the purpose of Proverbs, is, as you recall, a couple months ago when we established it, the purpose of Proverbs is for you and I to learn principles of living wisely in a very dangerous world. You know, Solomon, the wisest man who ever lived, uh, he wrote the wisdom books, uh, certainly Ecclesiastes, Song of Solomon, Proverbs. Ecclesiastes, he writes, and we went through about a year and a half in Ecclesiastes. It's one of those books that he writes by way of regret. And if you really want to get perspective on life, and if you really want to understand what life is all about, read Ecclesiastes. It'll show you, and it's not a morbid book by any ways. It can be a dark book, but Ecclesiastes, Solomon writes out of regret that he tried everything under the sun, nothing satisfied, so he writes Ecclesiastes as warnings. Song of Solomon, certainly not that. Song of Solomon is a love story as he writes that. And then he comes to Proverbs. Proverbs, there's some debate when he wrote Proverbs in the middle of his life, uh, early in his life. But regardless, Proverbs is the wisdom book that instructs us how to live in a godly, in a godless world. The principles here are, are just profound. Now, as you approach Proverbs, I admit it's a very difficult book to teach, or as I should say to preach. Some people have tried to do it expositionally, verse by verse. Uh, that would be extremely hard because Proverbs doesn't lend itself to an even flow. You can be reading about one topic, and then the next verse, Solomon's off on something else. So as we've sought, about, sought the way that we want to go through Proverbs, we've decided to do that thematically, thematically. And the number one theme in the Bible, the number one theme in the Bible is not the love of God. The number one theme in the Bible is the fear of God. With the fear of God is the love of God. And Solomon in Proverbs, the dominant theme in Proverbs is the fear of God. He shows us how we are to fear him in a practical way that puts feet on our Christianity. So we spent some time, uh, a few weeks, looking at the fear of God as it unfolded in the book of Proverbs. And then we went into the second most important and the second most dominant theme in Proverbs, and that was the tongue, our speech. And we saw many warnings. In fact, over 90 times, there's warnings in Proverbs about the use of our tongue. We looked at the positive side of what good speech will do. We also looked at the dark side and looked at the damage that an uncontrolled, ungodly tongue can do in conversations. Damage, oftentimes, it may take a long time to heal, if ever. So we saw that, and we finished out Proverbs on the, on the tongue. And now we move into a third topic in Proverbs, 
one that um, certainly ranks high in regards to issues of life and something that you and I fight with every day of our life. It is pride, pride. Solomon would write about pride. The word itself, pride, appears five times. Proud appears three times. Haunty appears five times. And there's many other examples in its various forms that we find this a dominant theme throughout. Now, if I had to ask you what your biggest trouble was in the Christian experience, you might say, well, it's my tongue, it's my anger, uh, it's my lust, it's my worldliness, whatever it may be, I would argue that all of those are secondary issues. That the mother of all problems in our life is pride. It is pride. Pride is like the, uh, Joseph's coat of many colors. It has so many manifestations. Pride can, can, can rear its ugly head in all kinds of ways. And so as we go through Proverbs and we look at pride, you and I will understand you know, how deadly it is, how subtle it is, and how much you and I need to really get a hold of this thing. Because pride is what will keep you from a close relationship with Jesus. Pride is what will wreck marriages. Pride is what destroys churches. Pride is what causes us to be world, more worldly than anything. It's pride that we must come to grips with. And the fact is, if we're gonna, and we'll look at this, how God deals with pride is very serious. Very serious. But on the flip side, and we'll look at the converse, when we're done with Proverbs and pride, we're going to look at Proverbs in humility. And see the wonderful fruit that comes from humility. The wonderful nurturing joy that comes from being like the humble Savior. Of having the gentleness and the tenderness of Jesus Christ manifested in humility. And if there's any virtue, the highest virtue that we must pursue, it isn't the virtue of love. It's the virtue of humility. If you get humility, you get the capacity to love. And so humility, the opposite of pride, is what we will look at after we look at pride and see some of the things about it. And so tonight, though, we're not going to be knee-deep in the Proverbs. Like we did speech, we laid a lot of foundational work. We looked at James, where James says, no one can control the tongue. We looked at the very sobering words of Jesus, where he says, on the day of judgment, you'll give account for every idle word. So we did some foundational work on speech before we went into Proverbs. We're going to do that with pride, too. And I want us to look at a couple things. You'll see in your outline there. I want us to define pride. Then I want us to see how it's illustrated, and then just some fruits of pride. Now, there's many more. This isn't inclusive by, all inclusive by any means. But it will hopefully show us by the end of the night, if we're not already familiar with it, pride is a very ugly thing. Pride is a very ugly thing. It's also a very dangerous thing. And the first thing we want to see is the definition of pride. The definition of pride. Now, when you define it in its purest, simplest term, it means to swell up. It means to lift up. To lift up. In the Old Testament, it's applied to physical things like the swelling of the River Jordan. Uh, It's also described as like the rising up of nations. And we see the arrogance and the pride of the Babylonians and the Chaldeans. That was their pride, so their pride swelled them up. Pride in its basic sense is a swelling up or a lifting up in arrogance or conceit, which is really a manifestation of an unhealthy, elevated view of oneself. That's what pride is. 
Pride isn't manifested first. We don't define it by what we do. We find it by what it does. And what pride does, it gives you a very warped understanding of who you are. Pride will give you an elevated sense of something that you're not. What pride does is it skews our view of sin. It skews our view of depravity. And if we don't get that right, in the doctrines of grace, if you don't get total depravity, you get nothing. Is that you and I must understand we are totally undone, that there is no goodness within the human realm. Now, there is human goodness. But in God's eyes, we know what he says about our good deeds. He calls them filthy rags. Pride will skew that. Pride will allow you to look in the mirror and not see yourself as you really are. Pride gives you an elevated sense that is wrong. It's anti-biblical in understanding who we are. Spurgeon, Charles Spurgeon preached a sermon titled Pride and Humility. And this is how he opened it up in his description of pride. He said this, quote, I must try to describe pride to you. I might paint it as being the worst malformation of all the monstrous things in creation. It has nothing lovely in it, nothing in proportion, but everything in disorder. It is altogether the very verse of the creatures which God has made, which are pure and holy. Pride, the firstborn son of hell, is indeed like its parent, all unclean and vile, and in it there is neither form, fashion, or comeliness, end quote. He calls this the reverse of the creatures which God has made. And we're going to see that one of the various things that pride does is it created the devil. It created the devil. One of the great evangelists of the 19th century was Asahel Nettleton. And he was asked one time, what is the greatest safeguard that you have against spiritual pride? And he said this, quote, I know of nothing better than to keep my eye on my great sinfulness. In, in quote. And so when you define pride, it is the ugliest of sins a Christian may allow and practice in our lives. It makes us more like the devil than it does Christ. And why so? Because of what pride does. And this is what pride does. It focuses on oneself. It exalts oneself. It defends oneself. It puts oneself above others. It must express itself it refuses correction, it creates high opinions of oneself and low opinions of others, it dominates conversations with self-centeredness. Pride is so ugly and so powerful that it took the life, the death, and the resurrection of Jesus Christ to destroy it. There is nothing short of the gospel that can deal with our pride issue. Pride is so absorbed with self that when you cut someone and they're full of pride, that's what bleeds. And the only possible way to overcome pride is to be a gospel-centered, a gospel-saturated person who knows without the grace of God, you and I are totally undone. And the danger of pride, like I said, is that it has so many different manifestations. And we'll eventually look at some of those. Next Sunday night, I want to share, uh, I'll share some of those with you. But that's the definition of pride. Pride in its simplest uh, terms, it is a faulty view of yourself because you don't put yourself up against the only true measurement of humanity, and that is Christ himself. Pride will not allow, if, if you're not looking at Jesus, you will default to pride. But when you look to Jesus, that's where you slay pride because of the power of the gospel. Now let's take a look at pride illustrated. If that's what pride is, a false view of yourself, 
that always exalts self, that always dominates everything of self, then how do we see that illustrated? Let's look at three. The first one is Nebuchadnezzar, Daniel chapter 4. Let's go to Daniel chapter 4. Now, we're going to look at three examples. Look at two in the Old Testament, one in the New. Two of these have good endings. Two of these have good endings. One of them does not. Daniel chapter 4 and verse 28. Do you know why people don't come to Christ? Do you know why people don't fall in repentance and confession? God grants that. But we say, well, it's their unbelief, and that's true. But do you know what unbelief is rooted in? It's rooted in pride. It's pride. Pride. Pride is what keeps people from Christ. Pride is keeps, keeps people from even Christians walking close with him. Because pride will not, allow you, will not allow you to respond in graciousness when you're wrong. Pride will, pride will just re- raise its ugly head. Pride is what keeps people from Christ. Let's take a look at three illustrations here. The first was Nebuchadnezzar. We'll pick it up in Daniel chapter 4, verse 28. All this came upon King Nebuchadnezzar. At the end of 12 months, he was walking on the roof of the royal palace of Babylon. And the king answered and said, Is not this great Babylon, which I have built by my mighty power as a royal residence and for the glory of my majesty? That's where it began. That's where it began. You know what we see there? Lesson number one on pride. It's easy to convince yourself that you're a self-made man or woman. We have something that stands on our state capitol that gives evidence of the pridefulness of man. It's called what? The independent man. We'll see that that's not how God created us. But look at where it all begins with Nebuchadnezzar. Pride is enlarged in this man's heart, and the first thing he says, look at what all I've done. That's what pride does. Pride will begin by warping you to think that you're a self-made man or a self-made woman. There's not a single thing that you have tonight and not a single thing I have tonight that I did not receive. That doesn't make you uh, less in your work ethic. But Paul looks at the Corinthians and says, what did you have that you did not receive? And the answer is nothing, nothing. So here's lesson number one from Nebuchadnezzar. This is the road to pride that he went on. Number one, he convinced himself that he was self-made. Pride will always deceive you to think that you've accomplished more and that you've done something of worthy notice on your own. You and I are sinners saved by grace, and that's what we are. And number one, so we see in this, in verse 20, uh, 29 and 30, we see Nebuchadnezzar boasting of being a self-made man. That's the first indication of his pride. Now verse 31. While the words were still in the king's mouth, there fell a voice from heaven. Now this is a very important state, statement. Because what we're about to see is how God deals with pride. And we'll talk more about this in the weeks to come. I'll get ahead of myself for next week. But God deals with pride in such swift ways. Now, we'll see tonight what he does with Herod. But God is so animally against pride that he tells us in 1 Peter, and Lord willing, on Sunday morning, we're going to get to this uh, in our 1 Peter journey. But it says, it says in James 2, God opposes the proud. He's writing to believers. God will come to the believer in a sense of being an adversary if pride is deep down inside of us. That does not mean, and don't misunderstand me, it does not mean that God is your enemy. But you will perceive him as an enemy if pride is entrenched within us. And he loves us so much is he will go to no, he will spare no pain in eradicating pride from us. Or at least leveling pride from us. Nebuchadnezzar, he's about to learn this. 
So Nebuchadnezzar, he starts out the road of pride. He says, I'm a self-made man. Immediately the voice from heaven comes, O king, the kingdom is departed from you, and you shall be driven from among men, and your dwelling shall be with the beasts of the field. And you shall be made to eat grass like an ox, and seven periods of time shall pass over you until you know that the Most High rules the kingdom of men and gives it to whom he will. This is severe action by God on Nebuchadnezzar. And you know why? Because he loved him. He loved him. I can't imagine the king sitting there having prime rib one night, and now he's out there eating like a beast the next night. Why? Because of pride. It goes on, verse 33. Immediately the word was fulfilled against Nebuchadnezzar. He was driven from among men and ate grass like an ox, and his body was wet with the dew of heaven till his hair grew as long as eagle's feathers, and his nails were like bird, bird claws. You don't want to run into this guy out in the woods. This guy's looking pretty rough. That's the extreme that God will go. I read this by, I think A.W. Tozer said this. I'm not sure, but I think he did say this. Before God will rightly use a person... He will crush a person. And the, the, the premise of, of Tozer was saying, if you want to be greatly used by God, then God's going to greatly break you. He's going to break you. And what, what does he do? He levels the pride. Because if he wants to use you to influence people for Christ, if he wants to use our church to make a difference in our community, you know what he's got to get out of the way? He's got to get the glory hound within all of us out of the way. So that if anything does happen, and God does a good work among us, then we're immediately going to say it's all of him and really mean that. So he will break a man or break a woman before he uses a man or uses a woman mightily. And Nebuchadnezzar is about to be broken. Now he's in the woods. Look at verse 34. At the end of the days, I, Nebuchadnezzar, lifted my eyes to heaven and my reason returned to me. You know what that tells us? Pride is insanity. It's insanity. Sin is insanity. But pride is insane because pride forgets we're created, forgets we're dependent on God. It forgets everything that we are as created beings. That's why it's insane to be a person ate up with pride. And Nebuchadnezzar says, I went out in the woods and God took me to the woodshed and reason came back to my mind. You know what that means? That means that pride was starting to leave, and his reason started to come back, and he understood God sets in the heavens, and I don't. God is the one that rules, not I. That was another lesson we learned. Let's move on. And my reason returned to me, and I blessed the Most High, and praised and honored him who lives forever. That's not how he started. He started out with praise of himself. And now that God has done the great work of purging and, and breaking the man, now his worship is shifting to where it's supposed to be. And he says that I, I praise and honor him who lives forever for his dominion, his everlasting dominion, his kingdom endures from generation to generation. All the inhabitants of the earth are counted as nothing. But Nebuchadnezzar, that's not what you said when you was on the porch. When you were on the porch looking out at all your vast kingdom, you said, wow, look what I've made. Now you're saying everything under the earth is nothing. That's what humility looks like. That's what happened to him. He went from a prideful man to a broken, humble man. Verse 36, at the same time, my reason returned to me. And for the glory of my kingdom, my majesty, my splendor returned to me. How gracious is God. My counselors and my Lord sought me and I was established in my kingdom. Still more greatness was added to me. Now I, Nebuchadnezzar. Praise and extol and honor the King of heaven. 
For all his works are right, and all his ways are just, and those who walk in pride he is able to humble. How many people, I wonder how many people that came to Nebuchadnezzar and said, tell me what it was like out there. He says, you don't want to know. But I will tell you this, friend. Don't be full of pride. God opposes the proud. God showed mercy to me. He made me eat and live like a beast. But then he graciously restored my sanity. And he made me understand how evil pride is and how devastating pride is. Here's the four lessons from Nebuchadnezzar on pride illustrated. Number one, the pride makes it easy to think you're a self-made person. Number two, God will deal with pride forcibly and convincingly. And if you're a Christian tonight and you're suffering with pride, then be prepared for God to take you to the woodshed because he loves you. Third lesson, pride is irrational. Pride is absolutely irrational. Fourthly, we are never the same after God works on our pride. Nebuchadnezzar, did, we have no record that Nebuchadnezzar went back like he was. When God takes you in the wilderness experience and God begins to purge pride out of you and you're radically changed, you will not go back. You will not go back. Because you'll remember the chastisement. And you'll remember what he did to take you where you are. And you would not want to go back, but you'll look back and you'll praise him for the work that he did. So when you're in tough circumstances, and I know some of you are suffering, when you're going through difficulties in your life and you're going through hard times, it's God at work, really, to dig deep down inside and deliver you from your worst enemy. And your worst enemy is yourself. He wants to remove pride from you and replace within you that sweet fragrance of Jesus Christ, his gentleness, his tenderness, his humility. And that's where Nebuchadnezzar got. And Nebuchadnezzar, the king of the land, he would be a shining example of how God deals with pride. Here's another example. Let's go to the New Testament. Matthew chapter 26. And this is Peter. Here's the subtlety of pride. Nebuchadnezzar was a proud man. I mean, and he, he made no bones about it. Peter was proud. But Peter, even the expression of his, of his pride, it deceived him. One of the biggest problems with Peter in his fall, he didn't really understand how bad he was. He didn't really understand how deceptive sin was, how deceptive pride was. Look at Matthew chapter 26, verse 30. And when they'd sung a hymn after they'd done the Lord's Supper... They went out to the Mount of Olives, and Jesus said to them, You shall all fall away because of me this night. For it is written, I will strike the shepherd, and the sheep of the flock will be scattered. But after I am raised up, I will go before you to Galilee. Now, here's another illustration of how insane and irrational pride is. Look what Peter says in the next verse. And Peter answers him, Though they all fall away because of you, I will never fall away. Now, you want to commend him for his courage. You want to commend him for his allegiance to Jesus Christ. But I want you to see beyond that surface and see what pride was doing to Peter. The creator, the God who cannot lie, looks at his disciples eye to eye and says, you're all going to deny me and you're all going to walk away. And Peter, in the insanity of pride, looks at the creator and says, I don't think so. He looks God in the face and says, uh, you're mistaken. You're wrong. Not me. That's the irrationality of pride. It clouds your thinking. 
It clouds your ability to reason. We saw it in Nebuchadnezzar. Now we see it in Peter. Let's go on. It says, Jesus said to him, Truly I tell you, this very night the rooster will crow, and you will deny me three times. And Peter said to him, Even if I must die with you, I will not deny you. That's pride. That's pride. And here's the subtlety of pride. Peter believed it. Peter really believed it. He really believed he would stand tall. Beloved, you cannot for one second trust your own heart. That's why when Proverbs says, keep your heart with all diligence for out of the issues of life, that's why Solomon warns us constantly, do not lean on your own understanding. The minute that you make a spiritual decision, the minute that you start leaning on your own understanding about anything, you've opened yourself up to all kinds of disaster. We are commanded never to lean on our own understanding. We are commanded never to act independent of godly counsel. We are told to constantly refuse self-reasoning. And here pride, unlike Nebuchadnezzar, pride gets in there nestled in Peter's heart and he's not even aware of it. And that's what pride will do. It will ensnail you and it will trap you and you don't even know it. Now, go to Luke 22. And let's see what the Lord does to Peter in dealing with his pride. Luke 22 and verse 60. Let's see here. Let's back it up. Back it up to 54. Then they seized him and led him away, bringing him into the high priest's house. And Peter was following at a distance. Now let's get the, the image here. And when they had kindled a fire in the middle of the courtyard and sat down together, Peter sat down among them. Then a servant girl, seeing him as he sat in the light and looking closely at him, said, This man also is with him. Number one, first rooster crow. But he denied it, saying, Woman, I, did not, I do not know him. And a little later, someone else saw him and said, You also are one of them. But Peter said, Nope, man, I am not. And after an interval of about an hour, now you think about that hour. I wonder if Peter started mauling over what Jesus told him. I think he was so gripped with the fear of man and so gripped with the fear of people that he was oblivious to what pride was doing. And here's what happens. He says, I do not know what you're talking about. Third time. And immediately while he was still speaking, still speaking, the rooster crowed. This is the only time in the account of the betrayal. Like in Luke's uh, description of the Lord's Supper, Luke gives us an insight into this that the other gospels do not. And this is what he does. He says in verse 61, And the Lord turned and looked at Peter. The Lord turned and looked at Peter. Now the indication is that Jesus was close enough that he heard Peter deny him. He probably heard him say the third time, and Jesus looked at him. And I want you to think for a minute what that look was like. When Jesus eyes with his disciple. And it says, and Peter looked, and, and the Lord turned and looked at Peter. Now, this is what the look was not. It wasn't, I told you so. That's not the Lord. Now, I've done that with parenting, raising my kids. Not a good thing to do, by the way. You should have listened to me. I told you so. That's what Paul did on the ship. When they got ready to shipwreck, you know, and they got out there and they're throwing the tackle over the side in Acts 24. And Paul says, listen, you should have listened to me. You shouldn't have got underway. Peter doesn't look at Pe the Lord doesn't look at Peter and says, you should have listened to me. And he didn't look at him and say, you know what? You denied me. I'm done with you. I'm writing you off. Beloved, I don't care how much you failed the Lord. I don't, know how, I don't care how much you may have denied him. When he looks at you, it will not be a look of condemnation. It will be a look of love and pity. 
and it will be a look of restoration. It will not be a look of condemnation. And he looks at Peter, and we know that's true because look how Peter reacts. And Peter remembered the saying of the Lord, how he said to him, before the rooster crows today, you will deny me three times. And verse 62 is a wealth of insight. And he went out and he wept bitterly. Do you know what happens in verse 62? Pride is leveled. Pride is attacked. I would have loved to set, except it would have been so sacred, to set behind a rock and listen to Peter. Listen to him as he wept. And listen as he cried out, Oh, Lord, I'm so sorry. I mean, I, I can imagine the agony in the man's soul because he loved Jesus. Even his denial, he loved Jesus. And he went from, I'll never deny you, to an absolute broken man, humble to no end, all because of the look, the look of compassion from Jesus. Lessons learned from Peter. Number one, pride blinds us to our own inadequacy. Nebuchadnezzar, his pride said, look what I've made. Peter's pride caused him to forget how inadequate he really was. Secondly, our personal pride has impact on others. Now get this. We're not going to cover much more tonight. Get this. Peter said to the Lord Jesus in Matthew, we read this, even if I must die with you, I will not deny you. And sometimes we miss what the rest of the verse says. It says, and all the disciples said the same thing. They all followed the leader. Peter is this this rambunctious, over-the-top, strong leader. And he says, Lord, I'll never you. Never, ever, ever. And so all the silent disciples, they say, hey, if he can do it, we can too. We, we won't deny you either, Lord. And they all walked away. What does that show us? Be very careful because your pride will impact others. You will have an influence on others. That's why we've got to be very careful when we esteem things or esteem people. Be very careful as you're raising your kids, affirm your kids, but be very careful of, of, of trying to build a humanistic self-esteem. Self-esteem will damage. It doesn't build. You know why? Because self-esteem gives you a warped sense of who you are in the eyes of God. Your self-esteem is really self-worth because of Christ and because of being an image bearer. Be very careful that we don't inflate pride in a good way in a good intended way, which will only cause our children and maybe each other to have a warped view of how sinful we really are. I'm not saying don't affirm and don't misunderstand me. But if we're constantly appraising praising one another and praising our children for all these good things and all these good things, be very careful that we are not building within them a little pride, the type of pride that will seek to share a little bit of the pie Seek to share a little bit. A Nebuchadnezzar, I'm a self-made person. Or a, a Peter, I'm not really that inadequate. But again, don't misunderstand me. Affirmation is important. Encouragement is important. But we have no biblical support for building humanistic self-esteem in one another. We have every bit of support to build human self-worth based on being the image of God and redeemed by the blood of Christ. So Peter, Peter negatively influenced others. And the third lesson that we learn from Peter is the only way, and Nebuchadnezzar had this too, the only way that pride can even begin to be removed from us is you must be able to see Jesus. 
you must so safeguard your relationship with Jesus Christ. We'll talk more about that next Sunday morning in 1 Peter about how close we need to be with the Lord if we're going to give a defense. But in Peter's case, is that when you start drifting away from the Lord, it says there that he followed at a distance. There's a good spiritual uh, application there. If you distance yourself from your relationship with the Lord, you're going to default to a prideful person. The only possible way that you can prevent that is by staying so close to the humble one and enjoying fellowship and communion with him. Finally, and we're going to close. We're not going to get to the next point. Uh, Look at Acts chapter 12, verse 21. Here's the third example of pride, and this is Herod. Nebuchadnezzar had a good ending. God dealt with his pride, and he responded. Peter had a good ending. God dealt with his pride, and he responded. Herod had a bad ending. And what we see in the severity of that God deals with prideful people. Acts 12, verse 21. On an appointed day, Herod put on his royal robes. He took his seat upon the throne, and he delivered an oration to them. And the people were shouting, the voice of a God and not of a man. And immediately an angel of the Lord struck him down because he did not give God the glory, and he was eaten by worms and breathed his last. Pride is implied throughout this. And three lessons learned from Herod. Number one, pride seeks personal attention. You know, as you grow in Christ, as you grow and you start learning to walk close to him, do you know some of the pronouns that you stop using? I, me, my, and mine. The more you grow in grace, the more you start losing your identity. I, me, my, and mine. It becomes us him, them. That's the mark of grace. That's the mark of the John the Baptist. He must increase and I must decrease. Herod, all about him. All about him. That's lesson number one. When pride is entrenched in a life, people will have a tendency to talk all about them. And here's the danger of that. People will even talk in spiritual terms how God's using them. You'll have in conversation where Christians just want to talk how much God is using them. Now, I'm, I'm not saying we don't. But when Peter, I mean, when, John, when Paul comes back from, I think it's second missionary journey, he says he went before the church and he talked about all the things that God had done. Sometimes I hear Christians say, you know what, God used me for this and God used me for that. And I, I, just, want to, I just want to say, be very careful with that because God doesn't really need us. He really doesn't. But Herod was consumed with himself. That's what pride does. Number two, here's a second lesson from, uh, from Herod. Pride is fueled by others' praise. Pride is fueled by others' praise. And the people were shouting the voice of a God and not of a man. Hey, I'll be honest with you. I want every one of you to think I'm one of the greatest preachers on the planet. I know that's not true. But this is all you got right now. But I want you to understand that I like to receive the praise of men. I like for people to say, hey, that helped me. And it's, and it's right to do that. Don't misunderstand me. It's right to encourage one another. But be very careful how you handle applauding and affirming one another. Because if it's a novice, then you're going to fuel pride. And you're actually going to cause someone to stumble by giving them so much praise that they think they're almost like, the greatest thing that ever came to the church since the Great Awakening. The praise of people here really contributed to Herod's Herod's fall. 
He was fueled by the praise of people. Now, that doesn't mean, never tell me that you weren't held, please. I mean, if I, I mean, encourage me as I try to encourage you too. But be very careful how you handle that because pride is fueled by others' praise. And finally, finally, God deals with pride, or I should say God deals with self-glory very severely. And we'll see that next week when we look at these four bad fruits of pride. But God deals with, with self-glory severely. He has made it very clear, I will not share my glory with no one. And we'll see that next week. But Heron learned the lesson, and it cost him his soul. Pride will keep so many people from Christ. And pride will keep so many Christians from being effective for the Lord. And pride will, what will hinder a church from being an impact in the culture for the gospel. And pride is so bad that it cost the Son of God his life so that it could be defeated. And God loves you so much that he will not allow pride to stay within you. That he will do all the good work necessary. And Solomon is going to show us in Proverbs just some of the dangers and some of the problems that pride will, uh, will heap upon us. And Lord willing, we'll start looking at some of that in a couple weeks. Let's pray. Father, we so thank you for your word. And it certainly does cut us. And we confess that pride is a very real issue. But we also thank you that we have a humble Savior who come and modeled a life of humble foot-washing service and then died a humble death and was raised a glorious resurrection so that we can have power over our greatest enemy, and that is pride. May you help us to be teachable. May we understand all the different tentacles that pride can have in our lives. And may we stay so close to Christ, the only antidote, the only cure to the pride that remains within us. Thank you for the Lord's Day. Thank you for being good to us. We ask your blessings on the, on the young adult study tonight. We pray that you'll be honored and pleased. And we also thank you for giving us the Lord's Day and the chance to be in your word. So, Lord, we just commit our evening to you and ask that you'd arm us and protect us through the week, that we'd be good testimonies in our workplace, having good, honorable, honorable conduct, holy speech, and that we'd be peacemakers into the world that needs to see peace. In Jesus' name, amen.